and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Aloha mai kako. You are listening to Native Stories Podcast. Mahalo for listening in. Ovao na nea loko inoa no papuklea mai ao noho ao ma kaimuki. I am Nanea Lo from Papakulea, Oahu, now living in Kaimuki. Today we have Camille Kalama, Belina Mai e Camille. Um, this is another episode of what I call the Mauna series, where we're here live on Moku Keawe or Hawaii Island, holding space in solidarity with the Kia'i and protectors of Mauna Awakea, a sacred mountain in the peaceful protest against the 30 meter telescope that has been granted access to be built. Um, Mauna Kea is the largest mountain in the world and I'm going to give it the mic over to Camille for her to introduce herself. Mahalo. Aloha mai kako. This is Camille Kalama. Um, I'm a Native rights attorney, Native Hawaiian rights attorney. Um, my ohana lives in Waiawa Makai on, on Oahu um, and currently up here on Mauna Wakea. Thanks for joining us. So we wanted to bring to you all um, a law perspective here for the Mauna series. And Camille is a lawyer and she's practices in law. So what led you to law to begin with? I mean, it's probably a long journey, but we want to know your story. That's a good question. Um, but there's definitely points in my life that um, brought me in this direction. And I would say, you know, aside from always telling my mom, that's not fair. (laughs) Um, when I was in ninth grade and I was watching the, it was the, it was 1993. So the hundredth year anniversary of the overthrow, um, of Hawaii. And until then I didn't really have a, a consciousness about our history and that year, um, my tutu played a part in the Ho'iki song contest, and she was the queen's friend. And for me, that really brought home, you know, wh- what is going on here, and how how did we get to this point? Um, and that was really, I can say, the beginning of my consciousness as a kanaka. Um, a few years later, there was the leasehold conversion of Kamehameha School's lands. And the big issue for me was that, like, I did not understand how anyone could be forced to sell the land. You know, that belonged to Pawahi. It was given to her by many people for our lahui. And it made me question, what is this system and how can it be used against us in that way? And... Um, so that really started me on this journey of trying to understand what the system is that we're living in. How do we um, how do we get to the point where we are we are actively um, affecting change and not just relying on others to tell us what different things mean and and what we can and can't do, but we need to understand for ourselves so that we can. For me, it was being able to help our people um, understand it and, you know, 
in that way, if we know what the the facts are, we know what the ground rules are, like how do we operate within this system? And how do we um, protect what's precious to us like Monakia? Well, I resonate with that because I'm a master's student at the University of Hawaii Manoa and I'm getting my master's in urban and regional planning and I kind of had an aha moment myself where I was like seeing all these lands and water rights struggles and being like what's going on and why are people always getting the short end of the stick when it comes to planning processes and why do we always have to wait to the end and find out to the end of the planning to be notified and so I guess I'm a mini you but in planning. Okay, so how did you even get involved with Mauna Kea and this whole issue? Because I know this has been ongoing for a while. Um, the first kind of big events happened in 2015, and I know you were involved in that. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it starts a little earlier in 2000, and I think 10 was when um, issues on Haleakala started coming up with the Advanced Technology Solar Telescope, um, renamed the Daniel K. Noy Solar Telescope. And um, working at Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation at the time, um, we fought against um, that telescope as well and, and multiple lawsuits um, against the process um, for which it was permitted um, against the building of that in this, you know, a sacred space in a conservation zone. Um, and so I had that general understanding of the legal issues. And then in 2015, um, to be honest, my other half and I were, were um, we were of course aware of the issue and I had been on the board of Kahea at the time um, a few years earlier. So knew about Mauna Kea, knew what was going on, but the two of us were were not sure at, the, at that point where, what our kuleana was and where we could um, support. So um, he was friends with Kahokahi and classmates with him and, and um, had been asked to come and support in a different way. And I had been a legal observer um, in law school a few years before when the striker brigade came through for Lihu'e on Oahu. And so I just asked the question, do you think, um, would you guys want legal observers, you know, at the next big action? And they said, sure. So that was um, the first time I came up was in April to really look at um, the site and what was happening and get an idea of what kind of um, support we could or could provide with legal observers. And it was kind of a struggle. I, I searched around for the Hawaii chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, which is um, an organization that has really provided um, legal observation for direct action on the continent. And um, in Hawaii... At the at in 2015, we did not have an active chapter, so I had called the the chapter representative, um, asked if there were any other legal observers around, and really just uh, and said, you know, do you have training? Do you have anything? 
Um, and he pointed me to some online resources, basically. So I was able to find a guide, a few guides online, um, because legal observing is not um, just one organization or one thing, or you know doesn't involve a license or anything. Um, but it has been done enough on the continent for um, organizations like NLG to want to have some guidelines so that people representing themselves as observers don't um, kind of misrepresent what it is and what the function is um, and kind of taint what we do when, we, when we're in that role. Um, so really I just did a quick training on the spot the night before on June 23rd in 2015. And we had a team of about 10 observers. One was a former public defender in somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> And um, the most, everyone else was not a lawyer or a law student. Um, just people from the community who said, I think I'd be good in that role. And um, so morning of June 24th, we put ourselves in place and um, they did a really excellent job that day. Wow. I know that legal observers seems like it's a very important role especially when it can be a heightened experience with police involved and that kind of thing um can you explain to our listeners what hapa is because you said that you were involved with them okay yeah sorry Kaya. sure um Kaya has been around for a long time they're a non-profit um organization that tries to bridge environment and cultural, Hawaiian cultural issues. And Kahea um, has been involved on Mauna Kea for um, many years, including as a petitioner in the contested cases over the TMT. Um, so even right now, Kahea is providing um, financial support for some of the, for the camp, as well as um, some of the legal costs. And um, so, you know, they've been involved for quite a long time. Thank you for explaining that. So going back to legal observers and legal observants, um, what was different this time around in 2019? I mean, I know that I went to one of the classes and it was a huge class. There was like, had to be maybe like 40 people that came out. So did did you see a lot more people coming up um, because maybe they knew more about legal observance? I, definitely. Um, in 2015, our, our own people didn't know who we were, what our function is. And um, just to be clear, legal observers are, um, are present at things like direct action or protests to um, observe law enforcement and primarily to act as a deterrent to law enforcement um, from behaving, you know, unconstitutionally or unreasonably. Um, so, you know, to be very clear, it's not to observe protectors or document their actions. It's really to take note of police and law enforcement, um, what kind of equipment they use, what kind of warnings they give, um, what they're doing, and also to support in terms of getting names of people arrested to um, their support teams, the bail support and everything. 
so in 2015, um, you know, to be honest, it was not, I was not very organized at the time, <laughs> mostly just responding and um, gathering together who we could find the day of um, and the night before. And then we were, I, I would say, a little more prepared the next time around, which didn't end up happening um, because of the court ruling in 2015 where Supreme Court said, you know, go back and redo the process for TMT. Um, so between 2015 and now, um, I had heard from some law students, actually, who organized a student National Lawyers Guild chapter. Um, and that was great because they really um, organized trainings and just called me in to help do the trainings. Um, and by that time, we had... I had done with their, their poll, two of them, um, an online like video training with the National Lawyers Guild um, mass defense coordinator, like national mass defense coordinator. So that was a little more official <laughs> than 2015. Um, and so luckily we were able to do that, do those trainings um, early on and leading up to this. So now um, we have a lot of people volunteering a lot of law students, especially others that have been to the training, um, willing to come up and serve in that role. And, and I think having a, a good understanding or a better understanding of what the function is and, and why it's important. So, you know, now it's like a given. Of course we need observers, you know, whereas before it's like, I don't know what you do. So, um, uh, including Haleakala. We did some legal observing on Haleakala. Um, for some of those actions but again we didn't have um, a lot of time to train or maybe not as much interest in the training at the time you know mm -hmm. it's easier now to see why it's relevant so what does a typical legal observer look like um, at an action or a protest or those kinds of things so um, generally, a legal observer will be readily identifiable, like um, tend to wear the bright green or bright yellow shirts or hats. Um, NLG, the National Lawyers Guild, uses the yellow hats. Um, and you, you want them to be visible because the point is for law enforcement to see them documenting their actions. Um, but they also should not look like one of the crowd. So... Um, not wearing like a face mask or bandanas or like political shirts or anything like that. Um, otherwise, it kind of undermines some of the credibility and objectivity and um, law enforcement won't be deterred by their presence. So, and that's important to remember. We talk about um, if you want to be an observer and you want to play that role, um, keeping in mind how your actions reflect the group and reflect observers in general. So if you're out there shouting instructions to people or like leading a, uh, an oli or a chant or something, um, that, might, that may undermine your ability um, with law enforcement to see you as someone different, you know, to see you in that role. And, you know, there, there are some folks who plan to get arrested and, you know, want to be an observer for a couple of days and then get arrested. And, um, you know, one of the things we try to let them know is, um, you know, 
that happens. And a lot of people think being a legal observer means you don't get arrested. <laughs> but that's, it's actually not a special protection. So if the purpose of you being a legal observer is to not get arrested, it's not going to help you. <laughs> um, so the purpose, again, is to um, deter law enforcement and unreasonable, un unconstitutional activity. Um, so if you think the same way about how you dress reflects your credibility or objectivity, also your behavior, if you, you know, are in action, you suddenly jump in line and and get arrested with anyone else, um, it can affect, well, for one, your ability to keep observing for the rest of the action. Um, but two, you know, maybe the next day or for the rest of that time, you would, may not be an appropriate observer because now they're like, oh, you're one of them. Did, um, did any time any legal observers that you've trained or from like 2015 and now 2019 get arrested I mean I know 2019 definitely no arrest but or any kind of have you seen legal observers get arrested a great question and actually I have so not in 2015 um, law enforcement didn't really know who we were either um, and thought we might be with the AG's office <laughs> um, so they were very respectful and we told them you know this is why we're here but um, I did spend a week in Standing Rock in October of 2016. And I was there with other observers. And there was a, there was a team that came, a pair, um, from the National Lawyers Guild. And we weren't, we weren't necessarily coordinating with them. But um, one of them decided to go onto the private property easement where the pipeline was. And it happened to be Indigenous Peoples Day, and the action was to build a teepee right on the pipeline. And um, some of the kupuna, you know, their kupuna and their people decided to sit inside the teepee and not move. And so they were getting arrested. This woman was taking pictures of the arrest, which is something we would normally do, um, but police picked her up, and she happened to be a councilwoman from Madison, Wisconsin. And her law enforcement officers had been called into North, North Dakota to help with the enforcement effort. And she was so upset. I, I just heard from a friend that came from um, Pine Ridge, South Dakota. He said her officers actually roughed her up. And so she was so upset, she got the you know, the city or whoever had loaned those officers to pull them all back out of North Dakota. So anyway, long story short, yes, she was acting as a legal observer. She had the hat on, um, but she made a decision to go onto the easement. And that's something that as a, as a team that day, you normally decide like, okay, is it important to us to do something like that where we are breaking the law? Um, but, you know, it's a conscious choice because we want to be closer to make sure people are okay or, or whatever. So yeah, she got picked up. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so um, I know there's a bunch of legal issues surrounding um, the telescope here and Haleakala. Um, can you kind of explain to our listeners 
what's involved in all of that. I mean, I know every time I think of law, I think of, oh my God, like too much information. So I guess, yeah, in layman terms or whatever. I'll try. <laughs> um, when it comes to just the built construction of these telescopes, um, I'm talking about the DKIST now in Haleakala and TMT. Um, there are a number of legal issues involved in that. Now, in this time, there's legal issues with the telescope, but as far as the current action, um, legal issues with what the government response has been in law enforcement. So I'll try to keep those separate and, and keep it real simple. But for me, when, when whenever anyone asks me, like, what's the story with, you know, TMT? Why, are, why is everybody so upset? Um, I explain that it's really layers of issues. It's not a simple black and white legal issue. Um, it involves our history as a people, our history of land as a people, our national lands. Um, it involves the current state's zoning and what um, what they have said are supposed to be protected spaces. Um, it involves our traditional customary rights and practices. Um, so all of a lot of these issues, um, I guess to start from the foundation, when we talk about Mauna Kea, we're talking about um, crown lands, which are really down more towards the base. And then up at the summit, our government lands that belong to our nation of Hawaii. And, you know, even the United States has recognized that we as a people have unrelinquished claims to those lands. And they are to be held in trust um, for us until those claims are resolved. So if you think of from the perspective that at some point we should be able to um, regain these national lands as part of our, for our people, um, we want to know what kind of state are they going to be in. You know, we're concerned about the long term, not 20 years from now, you know, 50 years or 60 years from now that the TMT will be out of commission already. And the removal and the um, decommissioning causes significant damage in itself. So it's not as if this telescope will go up and then it can be removed and you restore that land back to where it was. There is really no restoration, um, no full restoration of the damage and the desecration. So from that perspective, these are our trust lands, our national lands, and um, what happens to them should involve our free prior informed consent as indigenous people. Um, to move up a layer, if we talk about our traditional customary practices and rights um, that's protected under now under Hawaii's constitution, um, I think a difficult thing or something that maybe economics and the state and government are not, um, it's not convenient for them to recognize is that our beliefs are that Mauna Kea as a whole is sacred right? And that our practice is really to honor that and not have a lot of human activity up there and not build structures up there. Um, but rather than see that as a holistic practice, um, 
the developers, the astronomers, the, the state of Hawaii wants to try to isolate and pinpoint where exactly are your practices. And, oh, they're not, they're not in this northern plateau because we don't have evidence of them. Um, and by evidence, you know, we fight with that Western system that looks at man-made structures and, and things that I, I would say they feel count in their system. Um, so there, there is that battle as well. Moving from that layer to the state itself has created um, different zones where certain types of activity should happen. So you have hotels in a certain place. You don't have them everywhere all over the island, right? You have them in these certain zones. You have industry, industrial buildings, business buildings in um, urban areas. Mm -hmm. And then you have agricultural zones. That's where the farming's supposed to happen. These mountaintops are conservation zones, and they're supposed to be the most protected of all of you know the lands that are here. And so it's difficult to understand that even though there has been an exception created in, in a conservation zone for astronomy facilities, um, it should be questioned whether that creates this blanket exemption for industrial facilities in those zones. And that's really what this is. If you look at um, the building heights for Hawaii Island, I believe um, the tallest buildings are eight stories tall on the whole island. And this telescope is 18 stories tall and two stories deep into the mauna. Well, it would be. Um, so you're talking a building nearly twice the height of any building on the island in one of these protected zones. And then I, I saw the um, advertiser, Suzanne Case and William Isla, talking about the fragile ecosystems up here and the importance of protecting them, which I fully agree with. But how do you say that with a straight face and also advocate to build this, this five-acre, 18-story tall building that will have will generate some hazardous waste. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, p people saying that we're talking about nuclear waste, um, which I've never heard. <laughs> but hazardous waste, yes. And wastewater. I mean, that's why they have to get permits for that. So, you know, again, if, if you look at it from all these different angles or levels, um, it does not add up. And I know that... Um you said earlier you were involved in Hawaii Legal Corporation. And what is Hawaii Legal Corporation and how have they been involved in Mauna Kea and TMT and the history there? Um, have they really helped with other land issues like Haleakala too? Or could you um, share a little? Absolutely. Um, Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation has been around for over 40 years now and fought some of the biggest cases for Native rights um, that you might be familiar with, like PASH, which is about access on the shoreline, like Waukeleopuna on this island um, to protect the forest from geothermal development, um, to East Maui water rights, you know, um, making sure that Kalo farmers in Kianai, Wailuanui, um, Honopo, all in the, um, the eastern side of Maui 
have enough water uh, to grow kalo and to continue their practices. So definitely um, involved in a lot of major issues around Hawaii for our people, but specifically to the Mauna, the Aina Mauna, um, for Haleakala, we fought, I don't know, three to four lawsuits against the solar telescope, um, the involving process um, and procedure, but also, you know, the issue of these telescopes being built in, in areas that our people um, believe to be sacred and and also have practices in. Um, for Mauna Kea and for TMT specifically, in 2015, um, we did represent a few of the defendants that were arrested, and we also um, challenged the emergency Board of Land and Natural Resources rules that were created specifically to target um, Kia'i who were on the Mauna and they believed, you know, sleeping up there near the visitor's center. Um, and we were successful in, in overturning those rules because um, at the foundation, you know, emergency rules must involve an emergency. And um, the BLNR had not identified any emergency. Um, so a few kanaka sleeping at Halepohaku um, <laughs> was not, they didn't even identify that as an emergency. So um, once again, brings us to 2015, where Governor Ige issues an emergency proclamation um, because Kupuna are sitting in the road and um, Hawaiians are gathering at, at Pu'u Honua or Pu'u Hulu Hulu. Um, our office challenged that uh, proclamation as well. And um, it was at a hearing on a temporary restraining order. The three-judge panel determined that Uncle Paul Nevis, who was our client, um, has traditional customary practices and rights to access Mauna Kea. And it causes him harm. Um, and you could extend that to anyone with those uh, same rights and practices. It causes him harm to block him from being on the Mauna and required um, the other side to give him notice when big convoys were coming up and when it would be dangerous for him to go because of that. So, and that's really how it should be that, you know, the, the restrictions and limitations should be related to what, you know, any danger there is, which in that case was convoys. Um, and also not overly restrictive and not overly oppressive, you know, to people's practices. And then, when it came time to the actual injunction hearing where the court would really decide if, if the proclamation should be um, halted, um, Governor Ige lifted the proclamation. So um, right now it's still out there, but it's not, um, it's not as active unless he reissues it. Um, so they're still holding on to that. And there's a few other lawsuits out there. Um, one is by Peter Olson, who's a Hawaii Island attorney. Um, his client is Uncle Kalani Flores, and is challenging the use of law enforcement from Honolulu and Maui um, up here to police and enforce on people here. And so, same thing, um, those law enforcement agencies or departments have gone home to their islands, um, but the lawsuit is still out there, and 
raises that question of, you know, what authority do they have different counties to be brought over and used against the people like this? Oh, yeah, I know. Um, oh, and she said 2015, but it was 2019 when she, she was talking about all that. Um, yeah, I went to a meeting because there was a kahea that went out for the emergency rules, but they only had practically one meeting on every island. And I had gone to the one that was in Honolulu in Manoa for the emergency rules, and I read over them, and it was crazy just crazy rules like you can't make a sound that goes more than like 10 feet or even less than that so it's basically like you can't make any noise because that's noise pollution just very minuscule rules that they were either very broad so that if anybody were to break them then you could be arrested and most of them kind of sounded like it was strictly only for Kia'i and protectors that wanted to practice their cultural rights as native Hawaiians of this land so that was kind of weird when I saw that and I know that a lot of people in the Paiaina was like when Governor Ige issued that emergency they were like oh my gosh so he's gonna use our funds like our money to go to protectors that are just you know blocking a road that makes no sense to have all these resources like the police officers from Honolulu and Maui being shipped up here so thank you for explaining that to us because I know there's a lot of people including me that didn't know a lot of that those things and you know now it's answered emergency rules okay explain more of that sure so in 2015 it was the board of land and natural resources who issued um, so-called emergency rules um, that apply at the 9,000-foot level and up um, within the lease area or, or on Dilinar's lands. Um, and then this time around, um, the Board of Regents for the university has been working for years on these rules um, that are supposed to be better management for the Mauna but end up looking like they're just targeting um, protectors, you know, rather than... Um, being based on good management. And so those rules will come up on August 30th for approval. And if they, you know, it, there there are questions about whether those rules are really um, constitutional. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, so do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with um, our listeners? And yeah, I'll give you the mic for that. Good question. Um, I think, you know, there's so much to learn here at the Pu'uhonua. There's so much to this issue that really uh, relates. Or I think there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, this is really about the larger issues. It's not about TMT. And I just want to make very clear that it's absolutely about TMT. Um, and what it raises in terms of all the issues for our people. So, yes, it is, but it's also about so much more. And it's both. It's not one or the other. So encourage everyone to get involved. Learn what you can. Decide for yourself. Um, but there is so much here that 
I just never dreamed. Thank you. So for all the legal buffs out there who want to know, like, how do they get involved for legal observance or how do they get, I guess, more educated on what's going on? Can you kind of point them to some resources or, you know, some social networks or something that they can kind of go to to find out? Absolutely. I think one great resource is um, Kahea's website. Um, they, because they've been involved so long, they have um, like fact sheets and information that's in a digestible form for anyone who wants like a basic overview background um, of the issues and the legal issues included. Um, if you're interested in legal observing and want to read more about it, there's resources online at the National Lawyers Guild website. Um, that describes the program, describes, um, you know, what what is the function, what do we do. And then if you think you want to be an observer and and offer that um, support up here, um, we have done a few trainings, and you can contact um, a few different folks. You can contact me. Um, Probably the best way is email, ckalama at gmail.com. Um, but you can also contact the folks at Kahea, and they are helping um, spread the word about observers that want to help up here. And then also OHA has provided some support for observers to get up here on the Mauna. So, mahalo. Mahalo. And that concludes our podcast for today. Um, please follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at Our Native Stories. And you can download our application at Native Stories and listen to us on podcasts, Apple Podcasts at Native Stories as well. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. If you have a story you would like us to tell or want to sponsor a future podcast, location story, or walking tour, please email us at info at nativestories.org.